Trusting the Bible is a podcast series from Tyndall House Cambridge and Bible Society. Conversations with experts in biblical studies. In our first series, Trusting the Gospels, we're exploring the reliability, relevance and reality of the four gospel accounts. In this episode, Dr Andrew Ollerton and Dr Dirk Yonkind ask whether we can have confidence to trust the gospel manuscripts and how the gospel accounts have been passed on to the present day. Well, it's Andrew Orton here from Bible Society, and I'm with Dr. Dirk Yonkin for a part two of our conversation about the reliability of the Gospels, and particularly the texts that we have today and how we got them. Um, Dirk, good for you to join us a second time. Thank you. We really enjoyed talking in the first part, particularly picking up about how did we get from the events of the life of Jesus to stuff being written down in the first place, you know, the four Gospel accounts that we have um, probably, uh, I think you gave a sense of dating being from somewhere in the 60s, maybe for the earliest gospel mark, uh, through until much later in the first century for John's gospel. So we've got this period of time, and what I want to dig into in part two really is, so from those earliest manuscripts being written, the, the, when, when Luke and Mark and John and Matthew put pen to paper, so to speak, well actually before we get to that, what did they put to what? Yeah, what was the writing, um, what, what would they have been writing on and with? Two materials were used, papyrus and parchment, at least in the Middle East. And people were writing down everything. So they were writing down tax returns. We have papyrus letters from a distressed son to their father asking for more money of their studies. We have invitations to birthday parties. We have political slogans uh, because people wanted to be elected to certain office. So people wrote and read a lot throughout. It was a very literate society. Okay, and and often because at the same time these materials were quite expensive or, or rare, they often wrote on both sides, and then they'd often reuse them and so forth. Is that right? So you get you get this multi-layered text on occasion, especially with parchment books mm. that happened quite regularly. Okay. And just tease out for our for our listeners. So papyrus and parchment. Just talk about what they actually are as materials, and particularly around the resilience issues that, that, that are quite different for them. So papyrus is made from tiny dried strips of the papyrus plant, which is a grass and grows quite rapidly in sort of um, swampy conditions, swampy and warm. Papyrus is quite fragile, so it doesn't uh, keep well in sort of moist circumstances. The only places where it basically survives is in the dry sands of Egypt, and that is where most old papyrus manuscripts are found. Yes, okay. Parchment, though, as animal skin, is a little bit more durability? Parchment is fantastic in durability, so it's the stretched out skin of animals. Now, most of those animals were slaughtered anyway for meat, etc., and then you use the skin for parchment. And in most circumstances, parchment can uh, last for many centuries. Yes, and so when we find, when we think about the actual copies we have of the New Testament, and in particular today we think about the Gospels, they're often not whole copies, are they? Precisely because it was written on quite brittle materials, papyrus. We often have what what you would call fragments, is that right? What what is a fragment in terms of, in in technical terms? Oh, I don't think there's a technical definition for fragments, but most of the manuscripts we have from, say, the first eight centuries 
are fragments in the sense that they contain letters, individual letters, from less than 25 verses of the New Testament. And sometimes it's only one letter per verse if you have a narrow strip of parchment or a papyrus. But in general, it gives you rarely a complete chapter. So most of the manuscripts are fragments. However, we have some manuscripts that are really substantial in number of pages and the number of texts that have been uh, the amount of text that has been preserved. So in that sense, part of the, the challenge is put, piecing together almost effectively scraps, aren't they, of the, of the original writings and trying to piece those together and make sense of where they're from and how they would add up to a fuller fuller piece. But in terms of, if you, if you think in terms of both fragments and whole manuscripts, I mean, how many are we talking in terms of the, let's start with the New Testament as a whole, how many um, manuscripts do we have that have, have survived today? Okay, if we look at the New Testament, then normally the number that's floating about is sort of four and a half thousand manuscripts. Um, That's true, but many of those manuscripts, roughly half, are liturgical manuscripts. So you get readings from the Gospels or from uh, Paul put into the order in which they appeared in the liturgy. So it's not a kind of a straightforward copy of the gospel or straightforward copy of the letters. Then, if you look at the number of manuscripts from the 9th century and older, then actually we have only 400 of those. So not many thousands anymore, but 400. Now, that is not a bad number at all. Because for most works that were written in antiquity, we have to rely solely on the medieval manuscripts because just stuff perishes. Mm. So the fact that we have 400 manuscripts from before the 9th century is a good number. Now, the majority of those 400 are indeed fragments. They help you to provide spot checks. They help you to sort of get kind of a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of knowledge is better than no Mm. knowledge at Mm. all. But among those 400, there are a couple of nearly complete New Testaments, so all Gospels, including Revelation, or complete sections or complete four Gospels or complete letters. So there's a good amount of material to work with. Yeah, I know in, here in Cambridge, there's a fourth century um, Coptic Gospel of John, isn't there, in the in the University Library, uh, part of Barber Society's special collection, which I've looked at, which is absolutely extraordinary to visit and see. Um, and then in the John Rylands Library in Manchester, you've got the little fragment. I mean, that, that's a fragment from John chapter 19, is that right? That, that might be the earliest surviving fragment, is that right? What's your view on the earliest surviving the piece that we have? Yeah, there are basically three manuscripts that can come from the second century. And the John Rylands uh, one is, is one of them. Uh, there are two others uh, in Oxford, actually, in the Oxyringus papyri collection, who could also be from the second century. Mm-hmm. Now, the dating of manuscripts is a bit, a bit of a tricky issue because it's done on the basis of handwriting and handwriting does change over the course of centuries, but at the same time, sometimes uses a sort of more archaic form of handwriting. So take those dates with a pinch of salt, yes, okay. but second century is a real possibility for three 
um, fragments now, we have. And, and these were being copied by scribes, right? Tell us a bit about that process. Because we're, we're used to printing presses, right, and machines. And I suppose in that sense, we understand that whatever you put in, you'll get out exactly. Tell us about the scribal process for copying. Um, the whole spectrum of possibilities uh, probably played out in reality. So we have personal copies, uh, there is one manuscript that has a sermon by a certain guy, then it has a letter by Peter, then something else, and then it adds Jude. It was a sort of private collection of material that grew over time. Uh, other manuscripts were clearly produced by professional scribes. Um, not always Christian scribes, but often they, they were Christian scribes. And we know they were Christian scribes because they make Christian errors. They clearly knew one gospel when they were copying another gospel. And sometimes you see the memory of the other gospel interfere mm -hmm. with the copying of the gospel they were working on. So then we know it, it's a Christian scribe because they know the text mm. fairly well. And then there is a small group of manuscripts that were produced under very controlled circumstances. Those, those are the real beautiful manuscripts. So they were carefully executed. They pay attention to details in spelling. Those are the real manuscripts which you could almost imagine that a scholar type mm -hmm. of person mm -hmm. would have. Okay. Now, I think one of the things that we reflect on from our vantage point is we're used to printing presses and machines. When you write a book, you expect the printers to deliver that book exactly as you wrote it with no changes. But what we're talking about in this period is that it was a handwritten process of, of transmission, scribal work. And therefore, as you noted, there are variants. And this is where our ears prick up and you think, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> so has it been, uh, how accurate was that scribal process compared to our printing presses of today? And to what extent then are we seeing over the centuries that differences are creeping in and, and so forth? What, what's your, we'll get to some specifics, but just give your overall view of how accurate that scribal process proved to be. The first couple of centuries of the whole transmission process were probably the most difficult ones. When Christianity was a minority, on the move, persecuted at times, uh, no central authority whatsoever, no status within society, no rich churches around. That must have been the most difficult time. And when we get a lot of evidence from the time that Christianity became the established religion, we have quite a bit of evidence, then we see that there were quite a few differences between the various strands of transmission. Uh, later, all those uh, differences were basically resolved and we get the official text of the church and liturgy was a, was a big leveler in that instance. But by the fourth century, there was quite a bit of textual diversity going about. Now, people knew about it. If you read a text that is uh, copied by hand, you expect that there are inaccuracies. So you expect that it may be necessary to compare your copy with another one's copy and then try to make the best judgment mm -hmm. what is the exact text. You corrected your own copy. So people lived in that sort of world 
anyway, where you expect that it is not a black and white situation, okay. but yep. there's a little bit of grey involved. So you sort of made way. corrections and adjustments on on the on as part of the process. That was a normal part of the the process, which which makes sense. And at the same time, so occasionally when you're reading the New Testament that we have the in our in our own version of the Bibles. There are often footnotes, aren't there, that just indicates that um, here there are there is a textual variance. There's one of of the surviving texts. There may be different options here. Let me give you an example. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about this one. This is in Mark's Gospel, um, chapter one, and uh, we we read that a, a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, "If you can." Uh, make me clean. And then this is the crucial bit. Moved with pity. This is the English Standard Version I'm reading from. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, be clean. But where it says move with pity, there's a textual variant there, isn't there? Tell us a bit about that and how you understand it. Yeah, so the moved with pity presents Jesus as somebody, you know, rich in compassion, etc. The textual variant here which is actually adopted by some English, uh, English translation, says something different. The textual variant says, and Jesus filled with anger, mm-hmm. oh, looked around and touched him. Okay. Where we have an angry Jesus. Yeah, which is quite different, isn't it? Cause the, so in, in effect, the choice is between compassion, pity, or anger. How, how do you understand that? I think the solution is fairly simple. First of all, the angry Jesus in Mark 1.41 occurs only in one Greek manuscript, but in a whole host of Latin manuscripts. So in a translation, it became very popular. In only one kind of Greek-Latin manuscript, it occurred in the Greek column. Secondly, an angry Jesus may sound uh, less palatable to modern ears than it may have sounded in sort of first or second or third century ears. Um, so when it comes to, yes, it is the more difficult reading and therefore the most likely reading to be changed, well, it's a little bit of imposing our uh, cuddly Jesus onto the fourth century, mm-hmm. perhaps. Thirdly, in Mark 3, we have a similar situation where we have Jesus with somebody who is ill in front of him, people who are challenging him, and then the text says, without any textual variant, and Jesus looked around angrily, and he stretched out his hand and touched him. Mm -hmm. There we have Jesus being angry in Mark 3, without a textual variant. Now, I think that what happened in Mark 1, that a scribe was copying, remembered that Jesus was angry, sees a word in Greek that is, has the same length, uh, being angry and filled with compassion, same length. The last five letters are identical. It's only the first four letters that differ a little bit. And therefore, reads or sees or expects being angry. Okay, so you think compassion is the most likely for the earliest and most original manuscripts. And the anger was brought in later. Yeah, that makes sense. So so that's just, I mean, it's one word, isn't it, we're getting down to there. And actually an awful lot of textual variants are even far less significant even than that one, aren't they? But at the same time, you do occasionally stumble across and 
John chapter 8 has one example of where there's a much more major section. It's not just a word or a, uh, or a difference of spelling, but there's actually a whole section. It's the famous story of Jesus um, being brought, uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery, and then he writes in the, uh, in the, in the dust on the ground and so forth and says, um, I don't condemn you. Very famous story, a beautiful story in many ways, and yet often put in square brackets or some kind of indication that this doesn't appear. Well, am I right? It doesn't appear in some of the earliest um, manuscripts that have survived. What's your view then on that story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8? Now, in this particular instance, it pays off to look at the evidence. And when you look at all the manuscripts up to the 7th, 8th century, there's only one manuscript that has the story. All the other uh, manuscripts don't have it. At the same time, we see that from the end of the 4th century, uh, this textual variant starts to be discussed among church fathers. So they knew about it and it started to become a problem, but quite late on. So the the actual manuscript evidence is overwhelmingly against. Mm -hmm. And... If you read through the Gospel of John and you pay attention to grammar, to style, to to rhythm, etc., John 8 really feels like the odd one out as well. Um, But that is a more subjective way Mm. of of approaching the issue. But based on the evidence, on the manuscript evidence, there is not a good reason to keep the story at that point in John 8. And I think, indeed, John 7 and 8 read much better without the story. But that's not the end. Mm -hmm. Because if you read the story in itself, um, it very much feels like we have the real Jesus here. It very much feels like Jesus beating the Pharisees with wisdom and compassion and then sends the woman away saying no go and sin no more it's not that he let the woman off the hook in any way so it feels very much Mm. like jesus how we got to know him from the gospels now at the end of john john makes a remark about no if everything were written down um, that jesus did the world would not be able to contain Mm. all the books as if it is an open invitation to, hey, wait a minute, there is that story, that memory of Jesus that mm-hmm. has been sort of uh, no, handed down. Where should we put it? Okay. Where should yeah. we keep it? And I think that is the reason why it ended up. Okay, so your view would be it probably wasn't original to John's gospel, but it probably was uh, nevertheless an incident in the life of Jesus. And as with many that weren't actually including John's gospel, it was perhaps almost copied and pasted back in at a later time. I wouldn't be surprised yeah, okay. if that is indeed yeah. the case. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Dirk, just summing all of this up, um, thinking over the the process, I suppose, we've, we've been in discussion of a process, really, of how, how do you get from the events of the life of Jesus himself right through the oral tradition where it was being handed on uh, by word of mouth and then into it being researched and then written down by the gospel writers. Uh, but we don't actually have their manuscripts. We have what's been copied by scribes over the centuries to the sort of manuscripts that we have today. You think of all of that process and then you think, so as Christians, we we really build our faith around our knowledge of Jesus Christ in the gospels. It's really quite, what, what we're discussing here is not just... Um, you know, ancient history. It's it's a living faith, isn't it, that's at stake in all of this. What kind of confidence can we have, given that process, that we really do know through the Gospels, Jesus Christ for real? For me, it's very much a 
personal journey as well. When I was a teenager and I got my first Greek New Testament, and in the lower margin, I got saw the record of all those textual variants there were. That disturbed me a little bit. So, so that planted the seed of why not go in, into that question. But a couple of things to note. The first thing is most textual variants, most differences between manuscripts do not matter at all. And that has to do with the, the nature of a text, with nature of communication. We can have a decent conversation. Some of our listeners may zone out and miss a couple of sentences without losing anything of substance. Why? Because we are able to infer what was missing simply by means of context. Oh, it is not just a sequence of words, it is a web of connections and connotations, etc. So a single textual variant does not matter often that much. Secondly, we can do some pretty, uh, pretty detailed study of the things that tend to go wrong with manuscripts. So... On occasion, a scribe will change Jesus Christ to Christ Jesus. Not a big change, but never will a scribe change it every time he sees it, because most of those changes are accidental. So that helps you to sort of restore the, the proper order. So except for those big variants, such as the woman caught in adultery, most textual variants do not matter at all and can be corrected relatively easily. Um, why I personally have trust that when I open my Bible, my Greek New Testament or a translation, that I hold the word of God, is that um, to the best of my ability, I have more than sufficient knowledge of everything that is said. Now, there may be some boundaries to my knowledge, which is a perfectly human thing, and we have boundaries of knowledge in every aspect of life. So not to be able to know the exact spelling of each and every word, I can live with it. I just rejoice in all those many things that give me already an overwhelming level of evidence why I can trust everything that's been said. Mm -hmm. Dirk, thank you so much. Uh, I think not only for this conversation, but for what you do as a scholar and others at Tyndale House to, in, in effect, bring together the diversity of texts and allow us to have the authoritative um, account of the life of Jesus. So we're grateful for that and for your conversation today. Thanks, Dirk. It's absolutely my pleasure chatting to you. Thanks. Trusting the Bible is a collaboration between Tyndale House Cambridge and Bible Society. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to catch the rest of the conversation. If you'd like to know more about what we do, visit us online at tinderhouse.com or biblesociety.org.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the series, so do get in touch either on Twitter at Tyndale underscore house or email us communications at tinderhouse.com.